Second uh, Kings. Uh, we've been in a study of Second Kings in our Lord's Day evening services. Today we come to Second Kings chapter eight, verses sixteen through twenty-nine. Most recently, uh, we have been hearing about the ministry of the prophet Elisha, um, but Elisha does not. Uh, have a place in these verses that we're going to read today. Instead, we're going to be reading today about the reign of two different kings in the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, Jehoram and his son Ahaziah. Well, let's hear God's uh, holy word, 2 Kings 8, beginning at verse 16. In the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, when Jehoshaphat was king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, as the house of Ahab had done. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. In his days, Edom revolted from the rule of Judah and set up a king of their own. Then Joram passed over to Zair with all his chariots and rose by night and he and his chariot commanders struck the Edomites who had surrounded him, but his army fled home. So Edom revolted from the rule of Judah to this day. Then Libna revolted at the same time. Now the rest of the acts of Joram and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Joram slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, and Ahaziah his son reigned in his place. In the twelfth year of Joram the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Ahaziah the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaziah was twenty-two years old when he began to reign, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Athaliah. She was a granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel. He also walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as the house of Ahab had done, for he was son-in-law to the house of Ahab. He went with Joram, the son of Ahab, to make war against Hazael, king of Syria, at Ramoth-Gilead. And the Syrians wounded Joram. And King Joram returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds that the Syrians had given him at Ramah when he fought against Hazael, king of Syria. And Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel because he was sick. We're going to end this reading in God's word right there. Let's look again to the Lord uh, in prayer. Lord, our uh, God and Heavenly Father, we now seek your face. 
in prayer, seeking the help of your spirit, both in the proclamation and in the reception of your word. Uh, Lord, we pray that we would receive this word with faith and love, lay it up in our hearts, and practice it in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11, uh, after recounting for us the history of the Israelites in the wilderness and their descent into complaining and idolatry, and the judgment that came upon them says this in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 11. Now these things happened to them, that is to these Old Testament people thousands of years before. These things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. That verse is so helpful in helping us to see something of the relevance of the Old Testament to our lives today. Why was this history written of these two kings in Judah? I hope you were able to keep them straight. The names are kind of confusing. We have Jehoram first, although sometimes he's called Joram, not to be confused with the king of the northern kingdom at the same time, who is also called Joram. And then it was Jehoram, or Joram's son, Ahaziah, who then became king in Judah. Why the history of these two kings given to us? Well, one of the reasons is that these were written down for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages has come. So let's see what lessons we can learn from the lives of these two kings many thousands of years ago and yet so relevant uh, to our lives uh, today. We're going to look at this passage under uh, three different things, under three different headings. These two kings were wicked kings. And so we're going to consider, first of all, their descent into wickedness. Secondly, we're going to consider the judgment upon wickedness. And then third, the triumph over wickedness. Those three points, the descent into wickedness, the judgment upon wickedness, and the triumph over wickedness. First thing, the descent into uh, wickedness. As with most of the kings, in the book of Kings, there is a kind of evaluation given of their kingship. It's an evaluation that doesn't consist in territory acquired or the nation's economic prosperity or the king's popularity ratings, but rather it's an evaluation that consists in their moral and spiritual condition. It's a reminder that when the Lord looks at our lives, the thing that is most important is not the size of our investment portfolio or our career advancement or the size of our uh, vacation homes, but rather the question is, where are we with the Lord? That's what matters the most. Where are we with the Lord? And on that account, these two men, Jehoram and Ahaziah, utterly fail. Look with me at verse 18, the evaluation given of Jehoram. Jehoram, the king of Judah, 
walked in the ways of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had done. Then the end of verse 18, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Well, Ahaziah's evaluation is very similar in verse 27. Ahaziah also walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as the house of Ahab had done. And so here we have two kings of the southern kingdom of Judah, two kings who were walking in the pattern of the northern king, Ahab, the most wicked of all kings, that great opponent of the prophet Elijah, the one who had married wicked Queen Jezebel, who had introduced Baal worship into the nation of Israel, who persecuted the Lord's people. And here are two kings of the southern kingdom patterning their lives after Ahab. And what is more, these were two kings, father and son, who had had a godly ancestry before them. In fact, it was Jehoram's father, Jehoshaphat, who was one of the godliest kings in the nation of, of Judah. And so Jehoram would have grown up with the example of his godly father, Jehoshaphat. But instead, he rejects the God of his father. He follows the worldliness of the apostate king of Israel, and he cements that descent by marrying, actually, into Ahab's line. He marries Ahab's wicked daughter, Athaliah. And having married her into the line of Israel... Now the fruit of that godless, wicked marriage was terrible. We don't read of it all here in 2 Kings, but if you were to turn uh, to the parallel account in 2 Kings 21, you would see some of the wicked deeds of this man, Jehoram. He slaughters all of his brothers so as to eliminate all the rivals to his throne. He's occupied by a kind of, or he's a, uh, 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 consumed by a kind of selfish ambition for the throne. And then through him and his wife, Athaliah, that's the name of his wife, okay? Through him and his wife, Athaliah, Ahab's daughter, Baal worship is now introduced into the nation of Judah. And as a result of this wicked descent, we then read in the days of Ahaziah that Ahaziah enters into a full alliance with his uncle, Joram, the son of Ahab, as together Judah and Israel make common cause in warfare. And there seems to be no distinction between these two nations. What a terrible descent into apostasy. From the godliness of King Jehoshaphat, the wickedness now of Jehoram, his son after him, Ahaziah. Well, to illustrate this and to kind of bring it into a contemporary situation, let me uh, just uh, tell, as it were, a little uh, fictitious story of our own day, but yet it's a fictitious story that I think we see repeated time and again. It really follows the example of these men. Uh, let's 
uh, say that there's a particular individual, we won't call him Jehoram, but let's give him a more modern-day American name, James, we'll say. Young man, James. James grew up in a godly home. He had a mom and dad who took him to church around the people of God, who opened with him the Scriptures. Morning and evening, they came to church. In their home, they would open up the Bible. They would pray together. They would have friends that were the people of God. He was surrounded by the influence of the gospel. As James grows up a little bit into his teenage years and then into young adulthood, begins to drift a little bit from the pattern that was established in his home. He begins to meet other people and sees their examples. In particular, he comes up with one friend, Abe. We won't call him Ahab, but rather Abe. Abe, well, Abe also was one whose family used to be part of the church a while ago, but had since apostatized. Abe himself had become worldly and godless, totally secular, had no place for the Lord in his life. He had left Christianity behind him. He kind of thinks of it now as a bunch of myths and fairy tales, maybe okay for older people to believe, but not very contemporary for the younger generation. Well, Abe begins to spend time with James. James enjoys Abe's company. And James gradually begins to follow the pattern of his friend Abe. He pulls away from his church. He stops occasionally going to services and then stops going to services altogether. He no longer reads his Bible. He never fully got into the habit of doing it. But whatever little Bible reading he had done, he stops doing it. And he begins to spend more and more time, not with church friends, but people who are outside of the church. So here was a young man who grew up with a godly example in his home, but now he is pattering patterning his life in large measure after his life of this apostate friend. Well, James, having distanced himself from the church in this way, then he actually meets a girl, a girl that he gets very attracted to. We'll call her name uh, not Athalia, but Alexa. Okay, uh, Alexa is not from a Christian home at all. Uh, she's uh, grew up without any influence of the Lord in her life. Um, parents that never believed in God, never read the Bible, never took her to church. She's really utterly ignorant of the Bible, but James has more or less rejected all of this himself, and he's very attracted to Alexa. And so he begins to date her, and they eventually get married. They then have a child. We'll call this child not Ahaziah, but Aaron, little baby Aaron, born to James and Alexa. Little Aaron grows up in a home now where there is really no, very little, we can say, gospel influence. Not brought to church. The Bible's never opened at home. How different from James's upbringing. Now, James still has parents, and these godly grandparents have influence, real influence in the life of their grandson. We pray that the grandparents' influence, as very definitely can happen and does happen, uh, can lead to that child's conversion and walking in the ways of the Lord. But at the same time, this little child very well might not grow up in a Uh, or or doesn't grow up with much influence of the gospel and in a home that seems to be very little different from the homes of the worldly people around them. 
Little Aaron grows up just really only a generation removed from a godly home, but grows up in an unbelieving home. And that pattern has now been established. Dear friends, James' story, we could say Jehoram's story, is all too familiar, isn't it? There are many of you in this room who have experienced similar stories with your own children, and we pray that the day of grace is not passed in the lives of many of them. But I say this story to sound it really as a warning, especially to those of you that are young people who grow up in the influence of a Christian home and in the church, to say that this, what we have described as a kind of descent into wickedness, a descent into a worldly life with very little influence of the gospel that then has an impact on generations after you is a very real thing that happens in the lives of individuals. It happened in Jehoram's life just like that. And it happens in the lives of people today. And we need to be aware of it, friends. This is a descent that is real. And can I just warn you about the different aspects of that descent? There is that drifting away from a godly home and godly patterns that were established in your childhood. And when you begin to think, I'm going to leave that behind and kind of establish my own patterns after the example of worldly people that I see, friends, that is the first step the first step into a kind of apostasy. We need to be aware of patterns of worldliness and as well of close friendships with people who are not Christians, but people of this world, people perhaps to whom you are attracted. Now, we ought to have associations with people that are unbelievers and a desire to win them to Jesus Christ, but our closest friends, and especially those individuals that we become Attracted to, desire to date, and then even to marry. That if those individuals, we need to be absolutely sure that they are walking with the Lord. We marry only in the Lord. Because here is an example with Jehoram and wicked Athaliah of an ungodly marriage that has bitter, bitter fruit for generations to come. Friends, this descent into what we're calling into wickedness is a real pattern. 3,000 years ago, whatever this is, 2,700 years ago, and today as well. Descent into wickedness. Secondly, second point that I want us to consider is the judgment upon wickedness. What happened to Jehoram? What happened to Ahaziah when they abandoned the Lord? Well, their reigns in Judah are actually reigns filled with one tragic result after another. We read, beginning in verse 20, of Edom's revolt against Judah. They desired to establish a king of their own, and so Joram, or it's Jehoram, it's the same individual. Joram, or Jehoram, goes to uh, crush this result, revolt. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and what they find instead, and the, the parallel passage out of 2 Chronicles is very clear about this whole event, 
that essentially it's a loss for Judah. Judah's army is surrounded, they are destroyed, and many of them are killed. Now, Jehoram escapes, his son Ahaziah escapes, but actually we read that nearly all of his other sons, 2 Chronicles 21, verses 16 and 17, end up being destroyed. Well, there's another revolt as well, and that's the revolt of Libna, we're told. Beginning in verse 22, Libna was actually a city of Judah, 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem. But within the nation of Judah, here is a particular city which themselves revolt and secede from Judah. I don't know all the details of what happened here or why they did this, but this city then also is lost from Judah. In the midst of this wicked revolt, and remember he reigns just eight years, Jehoram receives actually a letter from the prophet Elijah. This is recorded for us in 2 Chronicles 21. So uh, still, and it's a matter of the chronology here, okay? The prophet Elijah is still alive, 2 Chronicles 21, 12 through 15. Uh, Elijah, who ministers, you'll remember, in the northern kingdom, now sends a kind of letter down to uh, the southern kingdom and king uh, Jehoram, and it is announcing the judgment of Almighty God against him, Second Chronicles 21, beginning in verse uh, 12. It says that a letter came to him from Elijah the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, because you have not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat your father, or in the ways of Asa, king of Judah, but have walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and have enticed Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem into whoredom, as the house of Ahab led Israel into whoredom. And also you have killed your brothers of your father's house who were better than you. Behold, the Lord will bring a great plague on your people, your children, your wives, and all your possessions and you yourself will have a severe sickness with the disease of your bowels until your bowels come out because of the disease day by day. It is the judgment of God. And indeed, everything that Elijah wrote comes true. Judah experiences a plague. How many lives are lost because of Jehoram's wickedness? And Jehoram suffers what one commentator has called chronic diarrhea and a massive rectal prolapse. Verse 19 of 2 Chronicles 21 says, his bowels came out. <laughs> well, what an awful judgment this is. Well, Ahaziah becomes king after Jehoram's uh, rather gruesome end. And Ahaziah allies himself with the Israelite king. He's only king for a year, Ahaziah is, but he allies himself with his uncle, and he engages in a rather senseless battle, once again, at the cost of so many lives against Jazael of Syria. The Israelite king gets injured. Ahaziah goes and visits him, and chapter 9 next week is going to pick it up at this point, but this will become the very place of his downfall. A one-year reign for Ahaziah, and no more. What a disappointment all of this is. Friends, what happened here to both Jehoram and Ahaziah in their lives under the judgment of God is just
just an example of what happens so often when people rebel against God. Now, understand this, that some who rebel against God do end up living in God's providence, end up living in worldly terms, very wildly successful lives. They experience worldly success, wealth, even seeming happiness. But at the end of it all comes the judgment of God. But it is the case more often than not, as in the case of Jehoram and Ahaziah, that those who reject the Lord in hopes, again, of worldly happiness and have dreams of worldly success, that those hopes and dreams more often than not come crashing on their own head as well, even in this life. And so often the result of people's rebellion against God is not happiness, but it's broken marriages, broken families, financial ruin, disappointment, strife, relationships that have gone awry, heartache, sickness, and unexpected death. And people think that they may have left the Lord behind when they rejected the Lord. But friends, you can't do that. You can't do that. God still rules in heaven. And God is the judge of all the earth. And how we need to remember this, you see Jehoram and Ahaziah in their rejection of the Lord did not have any happiness. Their, their reigns ended in utter failure and whatever they were pinning their hopes and dreams on, all of that was crushed. And you see, when, when the Lord's people experience heartache and difficulty and trouble as we often do in this world, well, what can we do? We can cast ourselves upon a gracious and a merciful God and know that His plan is good and wise for us and that what awaits beyond this life is an eternity with Him. But friends, if you have rejected the living God and you have said no to Him when such heartache and misery and ruin comes upon you, what are you experiencing but the judgment of God itself? You aren't running to the Lord. You see, these judgments, as it happened in Jehoram and Ahaziah's lives, dear friends, these judgments should have led them to the place of repentance. Can I say that that is still uh, the case with us? If when we reject the Lord and we experience something of His hand of judgment upon us, it is sent to us, dear friends, as a wake-up call. Turn, turn, while it still can be the day of salvation and of grace. Turn. The judgments you are now experiencing don't compare to the judgments that will yet await in hell. Turn now unto a God who is a God who can be the God of mercy and of grace towards you. That's what... Jehoram and Ahaziah should have done. They did not. How they should have repented. But might it serve as an example and a lesson to us.
So there we have seen their descent into wickedness, what has led to it. We've seen the judgment that the Lord sent upon their wickedness. But now, thirdly and finally, I want us to consider the triumph over wickedness. The triumph over wickedness. You know, this is a rather depressing a chapter of Scripture. Here are the kings of Judah. I mean, of all the nations of the world, these are the ones who had the law of God. They had the place of God's worship, the temple in, in Jerusalem. These are the ones who had the prophets of the Lord. These are supposed to be the ones who are godly in the midst of, of a pagan world. And here are the kings of Judah who have gone so badly astray. They're chasing foreign gods. What a state of desperation and despair. Is there any hope at all? And it's into this situation that verse 19 comes, and what a beautiful verse it is. Verse 19 says, Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. In the same way that a lamp needs to be continually refreshed with oil so as not to be extinguished, so the Lord here is saying that I am going to send one son of David following another, following another, and I will not utterly destroy Judah in order that my promise, he says, of a son of David who will rule over his people forever, namely the promise of a Messiah, might come to pass. It's the promise that was given in 2 Samuel chapter 7 in verse 16, the promise that was made uh, to David there, that covenant promise. 2 Samuel chapter 7 in verse 16, I'll go ahead and uh, just read that for us. Uh, but it's a promise that is sure and that is steadfast and the Lord uh, does not change uh, His mind. There the promise is this. Your house, he says to David, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne, David, shall be established forever. And on the strength of that promise, the Lord maintains His people, Judah, until the Messiah shall appear. Do you see what this is teaching us? This is saying that men and women are going to fail you. Even the kings of Judah are going to fail you. But when people fail you, God remains faithful. And the God who has purposed in the midst of this wicked world to send His own Son, Jesus, into the world as the Savior of His people. Do you remember Jesus' opening sermon in that synagogue in Nazareth when He opens up to the Scriptures, Isaiah 61, and He says that the Spirit of the Lord is now upon me. Who is He? He is the anointed Son of David. Finally, the Messiah come. God's promise fulfilled and God had maintained that promise even through dark days like those of Jehoram and Ahaziah until Jesus Christ shall appear. God maintains that promise and nothing can thwart it. 
Ralph Davis puts it this way. Yahweh's Davidic plan is still in force and the wickedness of some two-bit Ahab clone in Judah is not going to overthrow it. And friends, if that was true in the 700s B.C., that God's saving purposes would stand and that they could not be overthrown by the wickedness of man, even a wicked king, if that was true in the days before Jesus Christ came, how much more is it true now that Jesus Christ has come? That God's Messiah has appeared. That Christ has lived. He has died for His people. He has risen again from the dead and now rules and reigns from His heavenly position of power He has sent forth His Holy Spirit so that all of those whom the Father has given unto the Son and for whom Jesus Jesus died are now going to have hearts that are changed by the Holy Spirit, indwelt by His Spirit, gathered into His church. And it's a church that Christ is going to build and the gates of hell will not prevail against it until that day when the Lord Jesus Christ returns on the clouds of heaven, and all who have been bought by His precious blood are going to be in His presence, body and soul, forever and ever. Dear friends, that purpose of Jesus Christ cannot fail, no matter how many Jehoram's, no matter how many Ahaziah's, no matter how many wicked Ahab's continue to reign. We may live in a day, friends. It is true indeed, we live in a day of moral collapse. We live in a day where we experience the failure of leaders, the apostasy of so many so-called churches, the prevalence of false teaching, the rarity of true godliness. And yet, friends, God's saving purposes still remain. They do. They do. So let us be encouraged by this. If they remain in the days of Jehoram and Ahaziah, they remain in our days as well. The Lord Jesus Christ is victorious in the end. God is faithful. It is guaranteed. Nothing at all can stop it. The question that confronts each one of us today is, Are we going to be found on the side of Jesus Christ, the victorious King? He's faithful. He will save His own. Are we those who submit in repentance and in faith to Him? Let's not be found on the the side of Jehoram, Ahaziah, Ahab. I don't want to be with them on that final day of judgment. The tragic day that will be. Might we be found on the side of all those who belong in faith to the King of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we do pray that we would learn from the example of these ungodly kings. Lord, that you would be pleased to keep us, Lord, from the descent which they experienced. Descent into wickedness, the patterns of ungodliness, 
the sheer worldliness. Lord, we do pray for people that we know, really each one of us probably in this room as people that we know whose lives seem to be characterized by these things, and we pray that you and your saving mercy and grace would come. Shine the light of the gospel upon their hearts and call them in faith and repentance, Lord, the days in which we live. Lord, we do pray for your preserving spirit in our lives. We pray that you would keep us, keep us close to you, and remind us that in days of wickedness, Christ still reigns, and your saving purposes will come to pass. Lord, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, we're going to now uh, sing in response. We're going to sing a psalm. These are actually words which the Lord Jesus, uh, or which describe uh, our Lord Jesus Christ, but they also describe those who are found in Jesus Christ. It's Psalter Selection 16a, 16a in our Psalters, preserve me, O my God, you are my refuge true. I say you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. Psalter 16a, we'll stand to sing.
grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.